Hi folks, I want to welcome you to our adult Sunday school time as we are continuing in our survey of the Old Testament. We are in First and Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and we've entitled this portion of these historical books Israel's Kings and Prophets. And so we're in lesson four today. We're still looking at the reign of Solomon, and we're going to specifically look at the whole issue of his building the temple today. And we're going to focus on chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 66 in 1 Kings, as well as we're going to be looking at Second Chronicles at chapter 1, verse 13, through chapter 7, verse 22. And we're going to cover a lot of material today. We're basically doing a survey, but we are going to focus on the last portion of chapter 7, uh, when we come to Second Chronicles, because I think it's very relevant to uh, certain verses that are being used today in our culture, in the North American Christian culture, and we kind of want to talk about what they actually mean versus how they're being used. And so we'll look at that towards the end of our lesson. So let's begin. We're going to start off with chapter 4, as well as with the rest of chapter 1 in Second Chronicles, and we're going to talk about Solomon's prosperity and his administration of his kingdom. So first thing we want to talk about is his prosperity. Now, do you remember when we looked at this lesson last week, God came to him in a dream and said to him, after he made all of these sacrifices to him in, in Gibbon, he, he asked, ask what you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon asked for wisdom. That's all he asked for, wisdom to rule Israel. And God said that he would give Solomon wisdom, but give him riches as well. So we're going to see now his, the whole issue of his prosperity. So when we come to chapter 4, verse 1, it tells us that after Solomon returned from the high place at Gibbon, and the high place is where the tabernacle was, he reigned over Israel. So it's basically pointing out that he basically had established his rule, and now he is the ruler over Israel. Now, it also tells us a little bit about his army. This is completely different from his father, David, where they you know, basically called upon all Israel to gather troops and to fight their enemies. Here, we're going to see that he really has a standing army that is ready to address any threat there is. And so Solomon had over 1,000 chariots and 12,000 horsemen stationed throughout Israel. So he had them stationed at Jerusalem, the capital, but then at specific cities throughout northern and southern Israel, in Israel, the ten tribes, as well as in Judah and Benjamin, he had them positioned in all these different places. Now, he goes on and he tells us that the whole issue of his prosperity benefited the nation. How's that? Well, Solomon's reign made Jerusalem prosper so that gold and silver were common. Now, you might be saying, what do you mean by that gold and silver were common? Well, typically, if people had coins, typically they were copper coins. Basically, they, they dealt with copper coins currency. But during Solomon's reign, 
gold and silver became very prominent. So what does that suggest? Basically, the city was wealthy. The people were wealthy. They were doing quite well. In fact, it goes to great lengths to tell us here that Solomon's merchants imported horses and chariots from Egypt and then sold them to others. If you look at the text, it tells you very clearly that when it says Solomon's merchants, well, that's basically the commerce that was occurring in Solomon's reign. These are the businessmen who were there. They bought horses from Egypt and then turned around and sold the horses, not just horses, but chariots. I'm talking nice chariots, like the Cadillac version of chariots. Turned around and sold them to the kings in other areas beyond Israel, such as to the Hittites, to the Syrians, and so forth. So they basically dealt in military hardware, is what it's basically saying here. Because when you're talking about horses and chariots, folks, that's the military hardware of the time. So then it goes on now. So when we get over into uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 34, it's going to talk about Solomon's administration going to talk about how he administered the kingdom and what was going on while he administered the kingdom. So when you come to 1 Kings, the writer lists all those who served Solomon in administering the kingdom. So it gives you a list. We saw these kind of lists in 2 Samuel when it talked about those who were basically reigning with David and holding high positions such as high peace, commanders of the army, and so forth. Who was this? Who was that? Same type of list that we saw in 2 Samuel. We're seeing that now with regards to Solomon and his administration of the kingdom. It also points out that Solomon had appointed 12 governors who provided the king with daily provisions. So in his kingdom, which, by the way, when you read this, it's very evident that it includes more than just Israel and the 12 tribes. It includes other areas that were conquered, the nations around them. He appointed governors over certain areas, and their responsibility was to bring, well, some ways of saying it would be tribute, especially if those were areas that were basically captured, and now being administered by Israel. But the reality is, is that each governor was required to provide Solomon and his kingdom in Jerusalem, specifically for Solomon, a daily provision. So there probably was a certain amount of animals that were needed, certain amount of cedar, certain amount of stone, certain amount of resources that were to be provided by these areas. And so he had set these 12 governors over these areas to do that. Now, it talks again about the prosperity of Solomon and that the writer notes that Judah and Israel's population was numerous as the sand by the sea. So you can tell that they're doing really well because the Israeli people flourished the Israelites flourished, the tribes flourished, and that they grew bigger and they grew numerous. How numerous? That you couldn't even count them is basically what they're saying here. Again, a sign of prosperity. 
And then it goes on to point out where did Solomon reign? How far was the extent of his kingdom? Well, Solomon also reigned over all the kings from the Euphrates. So that would be the Syrian kings all the way down to Philistia. So everything in between, from the Euphrates down to Philistia, which is getting near to Sinai, Solomon was the ruler over all of it. He was the ruler over all those kings and governments. Now, the writer then goes on and tells us what the daily provision was of food that was provided to uh, Solomon. So he lists that daily provision. And folks, you're going to be like shocked, like, did one man eat all of that? No, it's not for one man. Because you kind of remember that they are basically hosting people all the time. It was an honor to be seated with the king, seated at his table for dinner or for feasting. And so there was a daily provision that needed to be provided, not just to feed the king, but to feed the king's servants in his household, not just his guests, but the servants. So there was a daily provision that was required to be given to take care of the king. And it kind of tells you what that provision is. And then again, it's going to stress the prosperity of Israel and Judah. All Israel and Judah dwelt in safety during the days of Solomon. There were no threats, folks. No wars, no threats. He was the dominant thing that was going on. This is a time of peace for them. A time of peace for them. They dwelt in safety. Now, it goes on when we talk about Solomon's administration, the writer goes on and gives us some insight into his wisdom. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom with great understanding and a large heart. Now, I think this is significant. Notice that it's, it's kind of delineating that here for us. It's not just saying that he has understanding, but his understanding was tempered by a large heart, compassion. This is what sets Solomon aside from everyone else in that he could reign and rule because he has understanding and wisdom, but he also has a heart as he administers. This is what makes him great. It says that Solomon was wiser than all men as he spoke 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. Wow, that is amazing. Now, you and I think about the book of Proverbs that are in the Old Testament, and we think about the 31 chapters that are there and the Proverbs that are listed there. I'll be honest with you, 3,000 is more than just those Proverbs that are listed there. Solomon knew 3,000 Proverbs, plus he also knew 1,005 songs. That's pretty wild. It also tells us that Solomon's wisdom included a knowledge of plant and animal life. So learned was Solomon that he understood the plants that were prevalent in their area, in their world at that time, 
but he also understood the animals and the ways of the animals that were in that time. That's how wise Solomon was. This guy is beyond anything that you and I could think of. And the reality is, is that the fame of his wisdom spread throughout the known world. The fame of Solomon's wisdom spread throughout the known world. Now, we get to the point now where you remember. Do you remember when we talked about David's charge to Solomon? We saw that in our second lesson. We also saw that at the end of 2 Samuel, where David is charging his son Solomon to, to build what David always wanted to build, and that was the temple. So now we get to the whole issue of building the temple, and so that starts off in chapter 5. Chapter 5 really gives us the preparations for the temple. We also see that in chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. And so in Kings especially, you see that the writer records the interaction between Solomon and Hiram, king of Tyre. Now, let me just stop for a moment. I need to make this point. Hiram was not a God-fearing king. He was a pagan king. Now, he may use words in his interaction about the Lord your God. I think that's more diplomatic than anything, but Hiram was a pagan king. We're going to see that, especially later on when we get to the, old, the whole issue of Isaiah, when it talks about the king of Tyre, not specifically Hiram, but other kings of Tyre, and, and their arrogance and their paganism. But what's recorded here is the interaction between Solomon and Hiram concerning fulfilling the desire of David to build the temple to build the temple. So what ends up happening is, is that Hiram provided Solomon with cedar and cypress, and he received a supply of wheat each year. So you kind of see like this bartering thing going on. So Hiram provides the cedar and the cypress, which are prevalent in what is we call now Lebanon, he provides that to Israel to build what they need to build. But in return, Solomon gives Hiram a supply of wheat. Wheat would be very prevalent in their area and the way the, way the land was and the agriculture. And he provided Hiram with the wheat. It goes on then for a significant portion of the scripture to tell you about the kind of labor force that was used to build the temple. Folks, we're not talking about just a crew of 20 guys or 30 guys or even 100 guys. It tells us that Solomon utilized hundreds of thousands for the building of the temple. Now, he utilized work crews not just from Israel, but from the conquered peoples of Israel. They were made into these servants who would be used to build the temple. It also tells us in this portion of scripture that Solomon had costly stones and large stones quarried for the temple. So he had workers from Hiram as well as his own quarry workers as well as another Canaanite people that were under his dominion he had them working in such a way to provide the stones that were needed for the building 
of the temple and not just the building of the temple we're going to see that he focused on building some other buildings as well and then i think this is significant in the 480th year after israel came out of egypt solomon began the building of the temple i think that's pretty wild don't you 480 years exactly to the time that the Passover happened and Moses and them fled out of Egypt when Pharaoh told them to go, 480 years later, King Solomon, son of David, begins the building of the temple in Jerusalem. 480 years, that's significant. So that, that you're going to see is when we talk about the construction of the temple, it's in 1 Kings chapter 6 through chapter 7, verse 51. If you're looking at 2 Chronicles, it's in chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 22. Now, we're not going to go into too much detail because when you look at these chapters, it goes into specific detail of what's being done. But the writer describes in great detail the construction of the temple. So it goes to great lengths to tell you about the different things that were created and how they were created and how they, what materials they were made of and how they were overlaid with gold and so forth. The writer goes to the description. Now, here's what I want you to see. Solomon took seven years to build the temple. This is not a project, because you, you and I know this, uh, you know, in our area right now, they're they're redoing the sheets over in Clearfield. And they started, I think, the end of September. And they said they're going to open up in December. Basically, they're putting a whole new building there. And, and folks, they're doing it in months, not even six months. And we're talking about Solomon building a temple. He's taken seven years. You say it was a difference in technology and material, George. Yeah, I understand that. But the significance is it's taken him seven years to build this temple. Now, it's kind of an interesting contrast here. There's nothing that, I mean, you can, you can read whatever you want to into it. It's a historical narrative. But the writer records that he took 13 years to build his palace. Whoa! Now, remember, he's living in a palace that David had already built for himself. But Solomon is building his own palace. Now, he's taking seven years to build the temple for the Lord. He's taking 13 years to build his own palace. Wow. That's pretty significant here. It also lists at least three or four other buildings here. He also lists other buildings that Solomon built, including a hall for Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter must have been the most prominent of his wives because he's building her own hall. Well, why would he do that? Well, some of it probably has to do with the whole diplomacy issue and, the, and, and, and maintaining relationships with really his what could be an enemy to his south, which is Egypt. So when the temple was finished, Solomon brought the things David dedicated into its treasury. Remember, in, in 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles, there is a listing of all that was 
dedicated to the Lord from the time of the reign of Saul, even into the reign of David. And these things were brought into the treasury when the temple was finished. They were brought into the temple. And Solomon made sure that that was done. We're talking a lot of wealth here, folks. Now, when you come to chapter 8, which is 66 verses long, and then you come to chapters 5, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 11, you're going to see the dedication of the temple. And again, we're just going to go through this briefly. There are some things I want to point out to you here, uh, but there's a lot of material here about how they did the dedication. First thing I want you to notice is, is that Solomon called for all of the elders of Israel and the head of clans to Jerusalem. Now, I think we understand elders of Israel. That's basically leaders within Israel at different levels. These are the elders of the tribes. Now, when you say the head of clans, what are you talking about? Well, if you remember, each tribe was made up of families. These families were in units called clans. And so you might be of, you know, your dad might be this, but you belong to this clan within whatever tribe you are in, and that clan would have a head. There would be somebody who would be the head of that clan. So, so basically he's calling for the, hel for, for the elders and then the head of clans to come to Jerusalem. Folks, we're also going to see that it's a sacred assembly, and he basically calls all Israel there. This is a significant event in the history of Israel, the, the dedication of the temple to the Lord. It then says that he brought the ark and the tabernacle up to the temple. Now, if you remember, with David's reign, the tabernacle was basically located in Gibbet. The ark was located in its own tent in Jerusalem. Now, we can speculate as to many different reasons why and how that ended up being, but David wanted the ark with him in Jerusalem. For some reason, he didn't bring the tabernacle to Jerusalem. It was still at the most high place there in Israel at the time, which was given. And Basically, now, with the completion of the tabernacle, that renders, the, excuse me, with the completion of the temple, that renders the use of a tent to be obsolete. So what do you do with it? Well, you bring the tent, the tabernacle, and the ark itself up to the temple. It's going to be now stored because this is the tabernacle, remember, that was created 480 years before when they were in the wilderness when Moses gave direction as the Lord gave him direction concerning the construction of this tabernacle according to the Lord's dictates. So they bring this up to the temple. Now it goes on and tells us that Solomon sacrificed innumerable sacrifices or it should be innumerable animals to the Lord. He sacrificed a lot of animals to the Lord. Bottom line. That is amazing. Now, an innumerable means they couldn't even count how many there were. So then it goes on and tells you that the ark, which was carried in accordance with the law, 
by the Levites, they placed the ark in the most holy place, and as soon as the priests, the, the Levites left who were carrying it, the cloud filled the temple. Now, you might be saying, cloud? What, 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 what kind of cloud? Well, remember, when they left Egypt and as they were getting ready during their journey for 40 years in the wilderness and up until the time that they crossed the Jordan into the promised land, they were led by the presence of God in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so here we see the cloud again, and it fills the temple when the Ark of the Covenant is placed in the most holy place. The priests, it said then, because of the cloud, the priests were unable to minister in this temple at that time because the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory of the Lord in the form of this cloud filled the temple and it was not the, the, the priests were not able to perform their functions. God showed up. This is the significance here, folks. God showed up. And so the writer shares with the reader, it's a very long section, the prayer of dedication that Solomon gave. And I would encourage you to go on and read it. He's basically dedicating the temple to the Lord and the people to the Lord. And we see that here in the text. Now, of course, there has to be feasting. So there were seven days of feasting for all Israel. And on the eighth day, they went home. On the eighth day, the king sent them home. Seven days of feasting, basically partying because of the temple and God's presence being in the temple, this is a significant thing for the nation Israel. So that brings us really to our final section of our study today, and we're just going to focus on chapter 7, verses 12 through 22 in Second Chronicles. And this is really the whole issue of blessings and cursings. Now, this should remind you of something if you've been studying all along with us through the Old Testament. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the lessons that we did in the issue of Deuteronomy. And that is God gave blessings and cursings to the nation of Israel with regards to their faithfulness to him. And so we see that here again with the dedication of the temple, and we're going to see that in verses 12 through 22. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different than what we normally do, uh, and that is we're going to read this section, and then I'm going to talk about it with you. So I want you to notice with me, if you have your Bibles, look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to start with verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek 
and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statues and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with Father, with David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forget my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them, and this house, which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight and make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? And they will answer, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he brought all this calamity on them. All right, folks, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at this section of blessings and cursings. And what you're going to see is there's one particular verse here. I think we're all familiar with it. It's verse 14. We often use that in context with our own nation and often within context for prayer. Now, the difficulty is, well, let's take a look at it, and then you're going to see there's a difficulty with how we use it. All right, let's talk about it here first. That evening, after all this dedication, that evening the Lord appeared to Solomon and affirmed the temple and his prayer. So he appears to Solomon again in a dream, he affirms this prayer of dedication that Solomon has given. He says he's heard him, he's pleased with it. And he's also affirming that this temple will be his place. That's what he's saying here. The Lord tells him that in times of calamity, he will hear the cries of his people. Now notice with me verse 13. He's being very specific about what's going on with the land. Now, again, let me explain something to you. When you read this, the context demands that you understand specifically who he's talking to. So when he's talking to Solomon about the land, who's he talking about? Israel. That's the land, the land that he gave them. That's what's being communicated throughout this passage, through verse 13 all the way to verse 22 with regards to Israel. And so when you look at verse 13, it says, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, what's that talking about? Drought. And command the locusts to devour the land. That's talking about a plague that will devour the plant life of the land. 
and send pestilence, which is disease, among my people. What we're talking about are times of physical calamity which are affecting the nation. Now, when you get to verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Okay, so this calamity here that it's talking about is because the people were sinning and had turned away from God. Now, we've already seen that this has happened before. Where, George? We saw that this is what happened when they were in the wilderness journey. When they entered into the land, that first generation after Joshua, what? They turned away from the Lord, and so God would raise up an oppressor, and then God would raise up a judge when the people returned back to him. It's talking about this continual pattern of them turning away from God, and God brings disaster upon the nation because they have turned away from the God of their covenant. Okay, so the Lord tells them that in times of calamity, he will hear the cries of their people, but they have to humble themselves. So the next thing I want you to say, if they humble themselves, he will hear their cries and heal their land of the calamity. Heal their land. I will heal their land. What's he healing them from? What he talked about in verse 13. Now, okay, so let's talk about how we're using it today. How we use this verse today is as we look at what's happening in our nation and we want to claim this verse, verse 14, if we pray and humble ourselves, then God will heal our land. Except what we're asking God to heal in our land isn't pestilence, isn't calamities such as locusts devouring things. It isn't drought. It's not natural calamities that God was using to punish his people. Notice something, to punish his people. We want God to heal our land of its sin. Do you see what I'm saying? So what we use it for is completely different than the context. Now I need to say this. When you take a text out of its context, you're left with a con. We are making verse 14 say something that it's not meant to say. It is talking about the nation Israel. It is talking about when God punishes Israel. If the people humble themselves, he will heal their land of the calamities. It is not talking about you and I who are in a Gentile nation, if, that, if we pray, then God will heal the Gentile nation. That is not what it's talking about here. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, I don't agree with you, George. That's not how this guy says it. That's not how this guy says it. That's not how I heard it on the radio. I understand that. But the text can't mean anything more than what it meant to the one who it was written to and in the context of what it says. You can take it to mean that, but I'll be honest with you, God is under no obligation to answer that kind of prayer. He obligates himself to answer the prayer of his people, the Jews, with regards to the calamities they're facing 
because they turned away from the Lord. This is all part of this blessing and cursing section. Because, folks, if you assume this verse for yourself, then maybe you need to assume the rest of the section for yourself as well, which we're not willing to do that. So let's look at the rest of the section. So the Lord stated that his eyes and ears are open to the prayers made in this temple. Now do you see the context? The context is, I, when I send calamity on the nation, when I punish them for their sin, if they humble themselves and pray, I will hear them. And then he goes on in verse 15 and he says, when I pray, when I hear, I will be listening for those prayers in my temple. I will be watching for people to humble themselves in my temple. I will be watching them to, to pour out their hearts to me in repentance in my temple for their sins. Listen, folks, when we talk about verse 14, we're not talking about our sins. We're talking about praying for the sins of our nation. It's specific here in this narrative, and again, this is a narrative passage, that with regards when they confess their sins and humble them, God would heal their land because that's why they're facing that. It's because of their sins. So then we go on. The Lord stated that he had chosen this temple and that he will be there perpetually. So basically, this is where he was to be worshipped. Now remember, why? Because at this point, Israel is worshipping the Lord where? At the tabernacle? Yeah, at the high place in Gibbon. But it also told us, we saw this just last week, that Israel is also worshipping the Lord at every high place in Israel. There's a there's an altar for the Lord at every high place. No, they weren't to worship the Lord there anymore. They were to worship the Lord at one place only. That was the temple because that's where the Lord was. And so the Lord expressed his blessing and cursing concerning their faithfulness. He expresses his blessing and cursings concerning his faithfulness. Now, I think this is significant because when you understand what's going on here, he's warning them. He is warning them several hundred years before the calamity would take place. What calamity? When Jerusalem would fall to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and the very temple that they are worshiping in that is being dedicated to would be destroyed. And look at how God is foreshadowing what will happen. Okay? What will happen? So if Israel turned away from the Lord to other gods, he would uproot them from the land. Now they've already been warned about this once before. Where? In the Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy passages with regards to the cursings and the blessings and that God warned them. Moses said to them that they would turn away from God and God would remove them from Israel and scatter them to the nations. He's saying it here again. If they turned away from the Lord to worship other gods, he would uproot them from the land, the exile. 
And then it goes on and it says that the nations would be astounded at the destruction of the temple. Listen, folks, they are saying that the temple of Solomon was beyond anything ever created before. It was magnificent in beauty. And then when Nebuchadnezzar came, it was all wiped out. And it would be basically, the, God is telling Solomon in a dream, the nations at that time will come and say, wow, what happened here? Why did this take place? Wow, they will be astounded at the destruction of this beautiful structure, the temple. And what it says is, is that the reason this will take place, listen, the reason this will take place is because they turned away from the Lord. Now, folks, that is the context of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. And if you understand it in its proper use, its only use, it is with regards to the nation Israel, when God brought judgment upon them for their sins, that if they went to the temple and humbled themselves and prayed, he would hear their prayers and heal their land. But he also warns them and says, but in the day that you turn away from me and worship other idols, I will remove you from the land. I will send you into exile. They had already been warned by Moses concerning that and Joshua. And this temple that you so worship in will be destroyed and the nations will look and say, well, what happened here? Why did this take place? And it's because they turned away from the Lord. So that is the proper understanding of this passage. And so that brings us really to the end of chapter 7, verse 22 in 2 Chronicles. Now, next week, when we get back to this lesson, we're going to start in lesson 5, and we're going to look at the end of Solomon's reign, or the latter years of Solomon's reign. And folks, up to this point, it's been good. Yeah, there's been some drama. Yes, there's been some retribution to establish his kingdom. But for the most part, the Lord loves Solomon. The Lord is telling him and commending him for his desire to follow the Lord. The Lord is blessing him. But you're going to see later on that something happens with Solomon. And it can happen to each and every one of us. He turns his heart away from God. And he worships other idols. The wisest man in the world begins to worship other idols. And the outcome of that, there is a judgment for that, and we're going to see that as well in this passage.